Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester Podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. We brought James McQuivian, VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester, and today we're talking about the emerging science of emotion. What it tells us about human beings, how we feel, and what makes us act, and how companies should respond. So James, where are we in the science of emotion? You know, you've asked a massive question with that. It's an exciting environment right now because we are learning after decades of thinking that we understood what emotion was or even where it happens in the brain or what it does in our lives. We thought, oh, we're really sophisticated. We get this. Well, we don't. Here's here's the bit. If I could just say this is the thing we've learned that has surprised us the most in the last just few years is that we, emotions don't just respond. You know, our our tendency to believe as human beings that your brain is this organism that receives input all the time and our emotions like respond. Like, oh, I'm mad at you for saying that or that thing made me scared. And then those emotions motivate us to go do something, to run or embrace something or whatever the case might be. That's the way we've thought of emotion forever. So the idea that advertising would be I will do something in an ad or something to evoke an emotion that didn't otherwise exist. I'm going to create something new. Exactly. You're saying that that has what's changed. I'll put this stimulus in front of you. You'll receive it. Your emotions will either embrace it or not. And I either, you know, some percent of my customers got that message and felt emotion and great, we're done. And hence you have Super Bowl ads that are full of sometimes over the top (laughs) schlocky emotions. But What's really happening is that our brains don't wait for input to start responding with emotion. In fact, we are constantly predicting not only the thing that's going to happen next in our environment. So the easy example is if, you know, you're next to a field where they're playing ball and all of a sudden the ball heads your way and instinctively you flinch. And you think, oh, wow, I have really good peripheral vision. I, re- I reacted to that ball coming my way. It was going to hit me in the head and I moved and it didn't hit me. Good for me. That, that kind of prediction is what your brain is doing all the time. Could this hit me? Could that run over me? Could that person be mean to me? But emotional prediction is the piece that we didn't know was happening until very recently, that actually our emotions are pre-testing. How am I going to feel in this interaction? Am I going to feel nervous, happy, sad, uh, loved, whatever might occur? And we bring that whole complex set of predictions to every interaction, whether it's an interpersonal interaction, an interaction with a brand, with a product, with a commercial on television. We are, we are hosting an arena of possible emotional responses that our brain is ready to trigger at any moment. And sometimes triggers incorrectly. That's interesting for science. But from an from a brand's perspective, from a marketer's perspective, what's happening is that sometimes I see in my emotional prediction engine that that brand is going to make me happy and I feel like it's going to make me happy and then the brand does make me happy. And that moment of happiness isn't just, oh, the brand made me happy. It is, I believed it would make me happy and it did. So it's not the creation of the emotion. It's actually the affirmation of the emotion. I thought it was going to be true and it was true. That's what creates this powerful impact. Absolutely, and it, and it has chemical residue, meaning that the brain actually then overamps the emotional mm. response and says, we predicted this thing and we predicted it right. And this could be true for bad things and good things. It works across all of emotions. And, but it, let's say it's something really good. I thought that I was going to land the first kiss on that date and I was excited and I did and everybody liked it. We we're all happy, good. Well, what happens is long-term memory now grabs that emotional expectation files it away. 
so that next time I'm with that person or I'm with that brand or I'm watching that show or whatever, I now start to feel this inkling of, I might get happy here again. I might feel that feeling again, and I start to crave it. So, James, that changes the way we think about affinity. It used to be that we thought of affinity as building something, but what we're really doing is creating a feedback loop. We're tapping into an emotion that already exists in long-term memory, and it's getting affirmed by an experience. Is, is that the loop you're referring to? I think, I think it is that loop. I think what's happening is that we have all of these terms in the history of brand management, mm. you know, back to when I was teaching it at Syracuse University in the 1990s, that we are now finally understanding what that language means, whether it was brand affinity, brand loyalty. We really couldn't measure it. We couldn't see it in the brain. And now we, we can. Essentially, uh, whatever term you want to pick from the lexicon of brand management, you're basically saying, I have fostered in you an expectation over time that you are going to get your emotional reward from me that you crave. And I keep delivering it. I will sustain that engagement and you will come back to me time and time again, whether you are the classic brands that we think about when we think about that kind of affinity, whether it's someone like a Harley Davidson or a Disney or an up and coming brand that is saying, hey, we're new in your emotional landscape, but man, are we over delivering and you're going to want us to stick around. But this is a more nuanced concept for brands, right? It's going beyond creating a message that resonates and builds an emotional connection. Well, it should. And we're in the middle of sorting through that right now, because on the one hand, you know, you take something like advertising, which forever has said, I, I talk to people in, in advertising all the time, the agency world and, and marketers who say, well, yeah, emotion's important. I've always known that. What I try to help them understand is that you have thought of it as a mechanical thing. I am triggering this emotion and I own that emotion in you. You never really do. What you are doing is riding along an emotional state that someone already desired and you are associating your brand in a way with that emotional state that advertising can definitely contribute to. None of this signals the end of advertising. And so, you know, the brand folks that I work with can breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> but on the other hand, it means that the emotional complexity of what it means to align yourself with that emotional outcome that your customer wants, it's more experiential than mm -hmm. it is message and informational. So just listening to your language, the use of my and I, this is all about the customer, isn't it? Companies need to understand and anticipate what is in James's long-term memory. This is the crux of it for me. For the longest time, you know, marketing science, segmentation in the 80s into the 90s, that was so sophisticated because for the first time we were looking at groups of people in a meaningful, quantifiable way. And then we got to the the age of digital where it was one-to-one -one marketing. And so we have James's name on um on an email. Congratulations, we are personalizing that experience, you know? Well, in as much as I put the word James in the title. Yeah, yes, right. exactly. And, and only there, yeah. but at least we, we feel like we're doing a one-to-one -one thing. Uh, the, the challenge then, and we describe this in our post-digital marketing work where we talk about that it's no longer just James as a person, but it's James at 10 a.m. in this location or at 4 p.m. in that type of context. And then it suddenly gets more challenging, but we still are stuck thinking that we understand James. And I think as we're getting to the complexities of emotion, we're going to have to accept that James has a completely unique emotional landscape that is his and his alone, formed from his long-term memories and the associations that he has, and that this partly helps explain why advertising has such a high fail rate and a high uh, you know, attrition rate. 
and why marketing generally, why you lose people over time. You, you can't engage them sufficiently because you are using very blunt tools. You're using very broad, you know, swipes at who you think they are. When in reality, the future of that is James has his own landscape. Well, let's come up with a technology probably if we think about digital intelligent assistance that will adapt to what James needs and convey the brand to him in his language and in his experience, drawing on the people, places, symbols, and objects that matter to him. Well, that could be amazingly successful at connecting to the emotions in each person's head. But then all of a sudden, what is a brand? This turns the tables on brands from sending out messages to you that cannily reflect their biases or more to the point, who they want you, James, to be, to understanding you, James, on your terms and in your voice. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, first of all, it, it can be incredibly overwhelming to realize just how nuanced and textured all of these things are in your individual customer. So multiply this by every customer. That said, there are some ways that we think executives can take what they already are doing or should be doing, perhaps we should say, and just make sure that they elevate their understanding of the role of emotion in that process. And, and you know, we're obviously big proponents here at Forrester of, of customer journey mapping. We have been for many years. But what has been happening as we've seen clients do their journey mapping is that it, maybe as you were indicating, they fall into their biases of mm -hmm. here's the journey that we think they're having or that we want them to have or that we prefer that they have. And maybe we'll all pretend that they're having uh, so that we can please the CMO. Who knows? So the idea would be across the journey map, not, not all the experiences are created equal. There are no. some experiences that matter su substantially more than others. And the goal is to understand which ones they are. And do they vary in path to purchase or consideration, you know, processes, other different parts of, of how I engage a consumer, in this case, James? Right. And, and that happens on a couple of levels. One, there are moments that are already likely to be fraught with emotion. You understand that. Your customers communicate that when you work with them. Great. And then there are moments that aren't showing any emotional resonance, but perhaps should be. Mm -hmm. And, but you're not doing it right. And so that's, a, that's maybe a nuanced, uh, a more complicated skill that we're asking someone to do is because there's mapping the journey as is. And then they're saying, well, if we could achieve deeper emotional connection, where would there be emotional moments? So you've got those two things, the moments where there's clear emotion there. All right, let's double down, figure out what are the emotional states that we are able to, to influence and align with, and let's make sure we're doing an effective job of that. Even if for you, the emotional state is different than it is for me, it's, chances are high that it's going to be important to both of us, even if it's in different ways. So let's focus on that as an organization. So from a design perspective, part of this is choosing those moments that have sort of this combination of it's authentic and meaningful to my brand. It will resonate. Yep. It's very valuable to, to me. It will affirm an emotion that may already be placed in, in your landscape. And so you have this multiplier effect where it goes right to recall and we have that affirmation. And, that, and I used the word affinity earlier, but whatever word matters most, I'm getting closer to you. Yes. That's the science we're in right now. That that's, is, that's the methodology we're in right now. That is the science we're in. And can I make it even more nerve-wracking? I like that, yes. <laughs> yes. I thought you were going to say nerdy. <laughs> well, well, that too, all right? Uh, what happens, unfortunately, and those of you who've done any reading about the dopamine reward cycle, you know that dopamine is a very fickle chemical. So dopamine is the chemical in the brain that mediates reward. When you are anticipating a payoff of some kind and, and that anticipation came because someone told you or you experienced it previously, whatever it is, 
you get a certain rush of dopamine right before you get the thing that you were expecting. And then when you get the thing, the dopamine actually disappears. And what that means is you immediately feel a letdown of, I need to go desire that thing again. So this goes back to, there's a, there's a classic Seinfeld episode where they asked him, what do you want to be? And he said, I want to just want to be next. I want to be next in line. The best thing is to be next. Because it's right. all about anticipation. It's all about, you know, fulfilling that expectation. And it, and it really is. And as a brand, this is one of the big challenges because we're sitting here describing a world in which as a brand, you get so close to your customer that you are aligned with their emotional states and their expectations. But then pretty soon, the predictability of you fulfilling their needs becomes tiresome. So you have to change the game. You have to change the package. It has to be new and improved. There has to be a new packaging or a new way to get that detergent into the washing machine so that you're stimulating people to reappraise the emotional connection that they have with Tide as an easy example of a brand that changes every six weeks, it feels like, in some aspect as a way to maintain that connection. We talked about the relationship between delivering a brand promise, and also fulfilling that brand promise in the experiences itself. So therefore, the experiences need to be equally as nimble or wide enough to affirm different expectation setting. I think that's a good way to say it. Wide is typically how most companies go for it. So listeners might make a judgment, this is hard. I mean, this is bringing in a body of science that really sort of probably existed in pieces of the advertising space, but in a very sort of top-down, control-based, one-to-many type way. Now you're talking about really understanding the way brains work at a very personal level, brains that are dynamic experiences that have to be fulfilled. This is hard stuff. For the listeners out there, is this where the world is going and how fast are we getting there? How, how, how fast do they have to bring this kind of thinking into their operations? Well, I'm a proponent of speed. I always believe in speed. So it's not how fast do they have to, but how fast can they? And, and I'll just give you an easy way to think of this. So, yes, it is hard, and it will be hard, and we still have a lot of science to do. Some of this is so brand new that it's going to take a decade before other scientists have even fully absorbed it. But that said, you can walk into your existing processes today where someone is doing a journey map, and you can say, find those moments of peak emotional resonance for me, and let's talk about how we can get into why did someone show up at that moment, anticipating a certain emotional experience. Did we deliver on it? You can just change the language that you use to discuss those moments today. You can walk into a campaign creation mode where you're thinking about messaging your brand and you've come up with all the brand attributes that you have decided you want to communicate. And you can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Which of these message points will stimulate someone to say, wait, I was expecting in that emotion and now I got it and I love you for it. Let's think in terms of this anticipation cycle to in-moment experience to then afterward. And this is actually one of the secrets. We, we wrote about this last year in, in our anticipatory CX report where we first started talking about this is we, we mentioned that if you can after the fact remind someone that they were that they got this payoff emotional payoff it actually they reconstruct mm. the emotion itself in the moment of recall and it amplifies it becomes deeper and what does that do it makes them want to talk about it so you want to talk about some of the earned media value of connecting to emotion it's not just letting them have the experience and hoping they talk about it it's coming up with a really crafty way to remind them that they had that experience so they do talk about it yeah so there's a lot of discussions on sort of a new body of technology artificial intelligence machine learning but i'm going to point at two virtual reality and augmented reality so these are ways that allow people to come back into a reality that they might have already had or set an expectation 
expectation for a reality that they might have. So this feels to be a very powerful way to sort of become part of this science. Could you talk a little bit about the role of these technologies? I think you've nailed it. The mistake that a lot of people make when they look at AR and VR, they dismiss it because they say, well, I don't want to play that video game or I don't want to inhabit that. It's, it's like a gimmick at that point. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you're only thinking of it from an experience perspective, then yeah, if I don't value that experience, I don't value that technology. But if you start describing it as you did, which is these technologies can plant in my mind the anticipation of something else, whether it's a cruise or you know some kind of vacation destination, and that's one of the first places that we're seeing this technology be used, or even just the experience of what it might be like to come to my restaurant, what it might be like to uh, buy this product. I mean, the idea that I could use augmented reality, uh, a a Microsoft uh, HoloLens kind of technology, and look around my house and see my house populated with specific furniture that I don't own yet, uh, or painted with certain colors that I haven't painted yet. That pre-visualization, that anticipation engine, that's, that's worth giving people. Right. the technology in order for them to experience that level of anticipation. But that but that really creates an intentionality to the design of the virtual reality. I'm trying to do something very specific and then affirm that in a resultant experience. There's something very intentional about that versus I'm trying to make it exciting or colorful or gimmicky. That's a very different way of thinking of those kinds of technologies. It is, but I think it's going to be the way of thinking about those technologies that will catch on more. We're already seeing in the enterprise, and my colleague JP Gounder has written about it extensively, that people in the enterprise are saying this technology could do tremendous things for communicating to customers things that today we have to communicate with spec sheets and all kinds of, uh, you know, poor uh, descriptions on websites or on mobile apps now, Um, whereas I could just have you visualize it. When you add it all up, James, what does it mean for executives out there as they contemplate this changing landscape? In the end, it means really you're going to have to let go of some things. There there was a time when the bigwig executive would come in and say, I think we should change John Cougar's or John Mellencamp's name to John Cougar Mellencamp, and that's my contribution for the day. Pay me a million dollars for that. And that, that's a true story, actually. That's what happened. Um, but the, the gone are the days where the executive gets to come in and pretend that they have some magic control over what's happening in the market because really there is this much more subtle dance, this interplay between emotion and experience that requires some real know-how. You've got to hire people and keep those people happy so that they are focused on saying, how do we get to that emotional outcome that James values so much I think the construction of teams will have to respect that. I also think the, con- the construction of the executive suite will have mm-hmm. to respect that. But also, you can take someone who doesn't naturally think in numbers and you can make them more numerically savvy if, as an organization, you make metrics a priority and you translate those metrics into emotional outcomes so that the someone who is more comfortable with the emotional outcome can say, oh, okay, that's what that number means to us as an organization. All right, I'm going to invest in making that number go up. And the person who's really interested in the numbers but doesn't necessarily have the affinity for the emotional outcome can say, oh, okay, you you tell me that when we move this number up, it achieves this emotional outcome. Okay, I'll move the number up. In the end, both of them want to move the number up using whatever skills they bring. James, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. Check out the show notes for links and relevant content on today's discussion. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn.